Welcome to the Akkad and Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Coca diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Welcome to this episode of the Akkad Coca Report. Today we are happy to have Tracy Hogue on. Tracy Hogue is an MD, PhD. Uh, and somebody that we've uh, come to become great friends with on, on Twitter, um, as most of the folks we follow on Twitter is, she uh, has a number of uh, searing insights into COVID and has been kind of on the leading edge of uh, of, of, uh, of of policy and uh, recommendations and uh, kind of insight into the data on COVID uh, for for some time now. Just so, so, Tracy, welcome and thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you so much, Anish and Rochelle. I really love your show. I'm so grateful to have found it. I, I really found it because of your episode with Jay Bhattacharya. And then I've been an avid listener ever since. So, uh, I mean, you guys have very uh, honest dialogue, very a lot, great insight. Um, and so I, I count on you guys. Thank you. Thanks so much. See, we, we, uh, we, we gave her that script. So thanks for that. Thanks for reading it so well. Um, so Tracy, you have a very interesting history. You're um, you're a Wisconsin Danish American double citizen. You uh, got your uh, you had a BA in French, uh, Phi Beta Kappa from the University of Wisconsin. You were born, born in Wisconsin, got your MD from the Medical College of Wisconsin, and then you went off to uh, Denmark. And in Denmark is where you, uh, while you were working in the ophthalmology department, you got your PhD in epidemiology and public health while you were at the University of Copenhagen, right? And then yeah. after that, you um, you did PMNR, physical medicine rehab at UC Davis. Um, you were chief resident, and then uh, and now you're in private practice in Northern California. Wait, in Northern California, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I'm in. Uh, it's in Grass Valley, actually, where okay. I'm in private practice. Yeah, that's correct. Um, wow, that is so fascinating. So. <laughs> So from that, because I, you know, just from your, um, just from, you know, uh, your uh, uh, imprint on on Twitter, certainly, um, I, you know, I just figured you were, uh, you were an academic. <laughs> um, and, and I mean, you cr- clearly have academic type credentials, but you're, you're in private practice. I wonder, are you, um, so when, when did you get interested in COVID and when did you start talking about COVID? Yeah, I mean, uh Great question. Um, I, I have lots of answers and thoughts about that. Um, but I, I started getting interested in COVID, I think when I, well, I guess from the very beginning before it even before we even really knew that it was here. And we were getting word of, you know, young physicians dying, there was an ophthalmologist you know, that we had a report of dying who was 38 years old. Yeah. And, and I, you know, what's happening in China, you never really know, like how much, how much of it is truth. And, you know, what, it was hard to get a handle on the numbers. And so I, I started really investigating it from the beginning. And, you know, I started, I was interested in like the theory of viral inoculum and like maybe young people were dying if they were exposed to high uh, inoculum. And, and then it basically, you know, from, from that point, um, I became really interested and actually started studying it from the standpoint of um, COVID and children because I have children. Um, and, and because I was very closely watching what was happening in Denmark and their policies towards opening schools and um, you know how they were viewing the pandemic was so different um, than how we were viewing and treating the pandemic, especially when it came to children. 
Um, and so I really started looking into sort of what data we had on children, how much they spread COVID, how risky it is for children, how safe it is to open schools. Um, and, it, and it was kind of like just, you know, out of my own interest. And then it became to be out, it came to be out of concern for just children in the United States in general. Um, that what, what were they doing? This was in the spring of 2020. So this was in the spring of 2020. Um, and I so I, I probably need to back up a little bit and and say, uh, so I had lived in Denmark for seven years. Um, and when COVID started, we had been in the United States um, for about five years. Um, but still in our house, like we still spoke Danish, we still watch Danish TV, we kind of like live in this little like pretend world that we're still in Denmark inside of our house. And like, you know, so like the worlds were not matching up in terms of like what was happening um, to children in the United States, especially I would say like children in public schools and then the children in, in Denmark. And I just found it really kind of sad the way it seemed like, you know, it was like two weeks to flatten the curve suddenly became like the kids are knowing, never going back to school, just like David Zweig said on your show. And that was profoundly disturbing to me because I thought, well, you know, in the United States, there really are not these places, you know, social services places for kids um, who are from poor families and underprivileged children to go during the day. And as a PM&R doctor, you know, I see kids with special needs and they're not getting their therapies. And um, so, I mean, that that's kind of the place where I started to become interested in researching COVID and started writing about um you know, the discrepancies between the countries and got connected um, with Amy Felk um, and the group of researchers in Wisconsin. And we did the Wood County, Wisconsin study um, looking at the spread of COVID-19 in um, public schools in Wood County, Wisconsin, which is a rural county in the middle of Wisconsin. Um, and then by so we we finally published that study in MMWR in January of last year, and we had found that you know the rates of COVID were um, 36% lower in the schools than in the community, and that of the 191 cases that came into the school, only seven were transmitted further um, within the school, and so. And 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 really, this was with you know it was it was with masking as we state in the paper, but you know there was it wasn't possible to always have six feet of distancing. The kids stayed unmasked indoors, um, you know, no mask during recess. It was like there was no like there weren't really extremely strict rules, and things actually went really well. And this was pre pre vaccine, um, and so you know I, I I felt like this was an extremely important finding and study and. You know that I and I was thrilled to have it published in MMWR. Um, and then I was really um, disturbed uh, by the reaction to it um, eventually by the CDC, which was sort of like to require even more distance between students and make it more difficult to open up schools. Um, and that there were there continued to be school closures, you know, all all across the United States, sort of based on party lines and you know whether or not it was a red or blue state. Um, and not based on science. And, you know, our group wasn't the only one who had found something like that. The Duke uh, group from North Carolina had very similar um, findings to ours. And they started this ABC collaborative to sort of like help guide the CDC. And they were kind of similarly being ignored. And I guess I, I came on Twitter really around that time because 
you know, that's when I started to realize something is not right. Um, like, why, why are we doing this to children? Like, why, why, why are we not, you know, making it easy for kids go back to, to go back to school? This should be a no brainer that kids have so much to lose um, from, you know, not being allowed to have in-person schooling. And, and so I really, that, that's, that was my start, how I became, you know, motivated to start speaking up and, and I've become involved in a bunch of different studies related to COVID and, and children since, since that time. So what, this is so interesting that like your, you know, your biases are kind of set up based on the fact that you have this kind of Danish uh, uh, background and the fact that you were in this Danish bubble in terms of what Denmark was doing. Can you tell me what how, how it is the Scandinavian countries? Was there was there a, a big difference in in terms of do you know if the Scandinavian countries were doing very different things? We always hear about Sweden, of course, right. but you know Sweden, Norway. I mean, were they all doing very different things in yeah, when it yeah. comes when it comes to the schools, or were they all very similar when it comes to the schools? So at the very beginning, they were really different. So um, Sweden basically said you know, we're not shutting schools down. We're keeping all schools open. We're not shutting them down for any period of time. Um, they, they did paid sick leave. Um, they limited large gatherings, um, but uh, they took a really different course, at least in the very beginning from Denmark and Norway, which basically did the same thing, which was, so Denmark um, closed schools for six weeks. And then they, so they opened the primary schools after six weeks, those were the first schools to open. And I, I will tell you that like they opened up um, Tivoli Gardens, uh, the, the oldest, you know, theme park in the world. And they they made that a large outdoor school um, just to kind of see how it would go. And then they, bad, you know, they started to transition into like uh, Cub Scout, Girl Scout huts and things like that. And then they basically like started to have regular classes and all this time, like maybe it was seasonality, but the COVID numbers were going down in the country. And then they opened up secondary schools. They opened up the rest of the economy for the adults. So, um, and that is, so Norway did very, had very similar um, strategy to, to Denmark and, but they opened up just like two weeks later, the primary schools, but you know, that's a very Scandinavian, I guess, concept. I would just say that like the kids, the children always come first. And, you know, as someone who started out here in the United States, and then, so I ended up leaving my first residency in uh, ophthalmology and moving to Denmark because, well, I could, and because they offer maternity leave and, you know, they prioritize like children, time with family. So, you know, um, so it's just, it's a, in, in my mind, it's a very obvious uh, divide, you know, between the cultures of Scandinavia and the United States. That's um, so interesting. And so, but just to be clear, Denmark and I mean, the Scandinavian countries, Norway, Sweden, I mean, they may have had two weeks here and there in terms of how long they closed school for, but they have had schools that have been open since 2020. Um, so, so Sweden kept schools open without any break. And then, so what, what Denmark, and I cannot, I cannot uh, comment as much on Norway. I think that they were very similar to what Denmark did, but they had very brief so periods of time uh, where they closed schools again. Um, but I will just kind of explain further that, that when they did that, when they always had a place for children to go for parents who are essential workers. Um, so they, they had like, they had these brief closures, but then it would always be the same pattern of like, first, the younger kids go back and then the older kids go back. Whereas yeah. 
Sweden really kept everything open equal, you know, right. for everyone the whole the whole time. Right. But Sweden Our, also had a lot right. of excess deaths compared to Norway and Denmark in the very beginning. And right. we say tribute to the nursing home deaths. Right, right, right. So I was just going to say, is that it, are, are most of the children in, in Norway, Sweden and Denmark, you know, not alive now because they kept schools open or <laughs> yeah. like what, what happened? Is it is this mass, mass death? I mean, uh, are they, do they, I mean, are they, are the, the country still okay or are they? I mean, yeah, there, you know, there was, they made a big deal about it like a month ago that there was, so there've been three child fatalities in Denmark during the three. pandemic. Wow. Um, and, and so I understand that two, like the, the first two children had basically like life limiting um, you know, illnesses. And then the third one, there was a lot of like investigation into because apparently this was a child that didn't have a known medical condition. Um, right. But yeah, but I mean, Denmark is 5.8 million people. Um, so it's the size of Wisconsin. Right. No, but still, I mean, I yeah. mean, the three deaths, two of them, severe conditions, one, basically one healthy child in all of Denmark. And they have the a much time. more zero prevalence rate, I understand, than we do. So when I, the latest that I right. saw from like this summer was like 8%. And I don't know if you guys have seen the United States, but it's like between like 50 <laughs> and 80%, depending on where you are. So right, it's, right, right. it's not like keeping half of our school closed, schools closed really decrease the spread <laughs> yeah isn't that so interesting i mean uh, you know it's like we're so americans well two points one is that americans are seemingly are so insular that like we for some reason completely ignore the fact that there's europe and you're i mean not just i mean there's so many different things that are happening there and yet you don't have these mass casualty things going on in these places i mean denmark which is the size of philadelphia greater philadelphia about five million has one healthy child that has had an issue that has had a problem and and right. in Philadelphia you know has kept schools closed or virtual or whatnot you know and I hear that and I was just told you know in my small little business that I have I have you know it's four or five employees and uh, one of my employees just told me that you know I'm not gonna be able to come to work you know in the first week of January because she just got a message from the Philadelphia school district saying that all schools are virtual that oh. first week. Of the, of the pandemic. So, I mean, the first week of the, of the new year. So, and it's fascinating, like, so, you know, and you touched on this when you were talking, this is the second point, you touched on this when you were talking about um, how you, you know, had this nice data set from Wisconsin about schools being open and you published in the MMWR, the CDC's MMWR. And so what is it, like, what do you think is going on that folks are ignoring not just what's hope happening, you know, across the pond and in, in Europe and in certain countries there, but also ignoring, you know, data sets uh, from here. Emily Oster, you know, has done a lot of work um, and uh, on, on this as well, and you know, she's also pointed out over and over and over again that, you know, there's no point looking at like some worst case summer camp scenario. You should try to look at the entirety of the of, 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 of the experience that we have in daycares and summer camps and whatnot. And overall, it seems to be a more benign uh, picture than than what public health officials who are mandating closures kind of recommend. Do you really feel that these closures are driven by uh, an ethos that does not put children first in the United States, like those people that are making decisions are making them knowing that children are going to suffer? 
Uh, no, I, I don't think that. I, I, I happen to be of the camp that I actually think most people are, are good people and, and want, you know, good things for children. But I guess, you know, I, there, there are a few reasons, I think, for what, what happened in the United States. And, and in terms of looking at other countries for evidence, you know, the United States does not have a history of doing that. I mean, the United States. America first. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I just want to, I, I want to say that, you know, I, I, so I moved to France when I was 18, right? And I, and then I ended up working as a teacher there um, of physically handicapped children, um, actually, after I graduated from college. And I remember the parents telling me, like, I would never send my children to the United States because they don't take care of vulnerable, you know, handicapped children. And, you know, I mean, I, those are things that Americans need to hear. <laughs> and I was glad that I heard that. And I think that, you know, I think America always thinking that, you know, uh, they're the best and has have all the answers is, is not, it's not healthy. It's, it's not good for the United States. So, so there's that. And then, so then there's also this problem with the CDC basically being uh, a political agency. Um, and I mean, I think we've kind of seen that over and over again. I was kind of like making a list the other day of all the messages that the CDC has, has sent out that seemed like more, you know, political than science-based. And it's, you know, it's like masks reduce infection by 80% and like, uh, you know, covering, I, I guess, like uh, minimizing, you know, vaccine-related myocarditis and, um, you know, uh, I could, I mean, there's a whole list, but like, you know, it, but the, the point is that I think like teachers unions had, um, had a large, played a large role in the decisions and in the CDC and what they were saying that could and couldn't happen in schools. Um, and, and that there wasn't as much involvement from like different, you know, scientists and physicians and public health officials and children. There are a lot of scientists that there are a lot of scientists that disagree with with the idea that schools shouldn't be closed right i mean yeah, yeah. Where, where, where where do you think they're i mean is this is it, it, it is it is it is it a is it really a debate about science do you think or is it um meaning uh you know i think one of the things i see from the other side when i'm when i'm when i attempted to argue i mean i think i, I gave up on arguing <laughs> With them a while ago because i think anytime we get into these discussions for some reason everyone imputes bad faith and yeah. i um but one of the things that came across from the other side was that you know you keep saying that the risk to children is low and if you keep saying the risk to children is low you are you don't care about that those few number of children that are going to have a bad event so to them Everyone will agree that the absolute risk to children is low, but then once you say that, then they'll say, well, even a low risk, you know, only zero risk is the best strategy in this particular case. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, I mean, that's, uh, that's obviously true, like that, that some children are much higher risk than other children. And, you know, I think that's a point that, you know, needs to be clear. And, and uh, I, you know, I agree with that, but I think that, the major point that you know a lot of people don't discuss is looking at the trade-offs of the school closures, you know. Right. So right. The, you know, with the, the harms, I I I feel like that that's been kind of like the problem all along is the myop myopic focus on on just COVID and not 
right. suicide rates and the decreased learning and, you know, the decreased socialization and, you know, kids not getting school meals and kids, you know, abuse not being reported and neglect. And, you know, um, so there's a reason that we haven't, you know, closed schools before for like, you know, um, influenza or, you know, and, and right. you know, other respiratory but diseases. You pointed out that the teachers unions, do you think the right. teachers unions are the fundamental reason why the United States is different from, from say, you know, Norway? Oh gosh. Um, okay. So, I mean, that's a, that's a big question. So I, I guess I would say it's not just the teachers unions. I, I guess I would say like the, the number and diversity of people who are at the table in those discussions was not as great as in, you know, Europe and Scandinavian countries where mm-hmm. you're really getting together lots of different people to make decisions and like, you know, but, Tracy, is, so, right. yeah. but isn't the CDC, like, why is it that the CDC is, why is the CDC not saying schools are a safe place for children to be? What is the, what is the reason for that? Well, it's interesting. If it's not, if it's not that. teachers, if it's not them bending to the political pressure of, I assume, the teachers unions, because I don't, I don't know who else is on the side of keep schools closed right. indefinitely until there's some magical so safety. I, thing. I, I wish someone could also give me that answer because right after our study and the North Carolina study came out, Tony Fauci got on TV, Sanjay Gupta got on TV and said, you know, it makes this seem like schools are safe. These two studies, we need the to open up the schools. Um, and then it was, it looked so promising for schools opening. And then it was like, I, I don't know, some something happened. And, and Rochelle Lewinsky kind of like got up and gave this press briefing about, you know, what the plan was for reopening schools. And it was stricter than it had ever been before in terms of the amount of distance required between students. And, you know, this was at a time when the prevalence of COVID was falling. Um, and vaccines were coming and, you know, it was like, what, why it did not, it did not make any sense. So, I mean, was it Rochelle Walensky or was it, uh, well, I'm not, I don't, I'm not saying her name to like put a blame on anyone. I, I, I don't have an inside track there. You know, I, yeah. I, no, but I, I, what, what I meant is that, is that in those days it was, it was, um, um, what's his name? Red, uh, Redfield, Redfield. Mm-hmm. Robert Redfield, right. She, I mean, she was not yet on board. I don't, I don't think, but. So this is, I'm kind of, I'm talking about in March, actually, when, oh, okay. when all the rules changed. And, okay. Um, okay. and so, yeah, it was a little bit different time because, and that may have been why it initially looked so, so positive, but, but, um, but I, I mean, the New York Post did like a, basically an, an expose article where they talked about like the teachers unions potentially changing the wording of the CDC guidance and, um, and, you know, nothing ever really became of that. And I remember talking about it with Monica Gandhi. You know, she's one of my best friends. We kind of like discuss everything. And we were both like, wow, this is going to be a huge story. And, you know, the New York Times and Washington Post, and they just ignored it. And, you know, and, and uh, I, I don't really have all the answers of why, you know, schools seem to unnecessarily stay closed here. But to me, it always felt like a political thing. And, and I would say that, a, you know, a lot of it came from a place of Americans, you know, being afraid um, and, and it also a different, I mean, and I'm not saying I would never want to minimize COVID and, and you know, I, COVID is, is a terrible disease and, um, you know, my husband works with immunocompromised patients and, you know, I, I 
fully recognize that this has been a devastating pandemic, but we certainly, I mean, it's been painted very differently in the United States by the media than it has been, um, you know, in, in, in European countries. I guess I would just say that, especially, especially the discrepancy is large, um, you know, when looking at, when looking at children and, and how dangerous COVID is to children. And, you know, in my mind, I thought, you know, so, we, we're really, you know, trying to keep levels of disease down, you know, to protect the adults, right, with, with the schools. And that, that always made sense to me. And then when, when, when adults were available, or vaccines were available to all adults, I, I didn't understand why things did not radically change, like schools just go back to normal and, yeah. and uh, you know, no masks and, you know, all this stuff that we were doing because we just had to throw everything at it to protect the adults, you know, like, you know, why, why didn't, why didn't schools go back to normal at that time? I, I don't understand. That. It is inexplicable. You know, Rochelle Walensky was just asked um, uh, a week ago to this day um, about, you know, will you follow the science and stop relying on studies, on faulty studies and end mask mandates for children in schools? And she just responded with, you know, the party line, which is children should be masked and children should be vaccinated. And I, I mean, um, you know, it really, I mean, I don't know, you know, you've gone and testified in Congress, right, uh, about this as an expert, um, uh, because you've done so much work and published all these studies and stuff. Um, do you get a sense when you go up there? Do you talk to Congress people? Do you get a sense of who is in the ear of these folks that are result that this is, I mean, yeah, what, like, what, do you get a sense of what's happening or why well, this is I happening? I mean, I, I think like the AAP and the teachers unions are, are playing a, a big role in, in what's happening. And, and again, I, you know, I, I'm, I, I don't think that people are acting in bad conscience. I feel like people are, you know, really doing what they believe to, to be, you know, the right, the right thing. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I was, I, the, the, Testifying before Congress has become a lot easier because now you just do it over Zoom. I, not that I had extensive experience with it before, but so I didn't actually get get to meet people in person. But yeah. So tell me, you've been obviously very outspoken about uh, about uh, schools being open, and 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 to your credit, that's a very courageous position to take for much of the last year. And I think history will uh, uh, will shine a bright light on the fact that you actually did that. Um, but you endured a fair amount of criticism from a number of folks, right? Um, <laughs> when yeah. did you start? When did you start attracting, um, you know, kind of uh, the? Uh, when did you start attracting kind of negative attention, if you will? Oh gosh, um, I mean, I. When did that start? Man, I'm so good at muting people. Sometimes people tell me and I don't know like that I'm actually attracting. Tracy, who, who is funding you to do this? <laughs> oh, yes, I did. Read is, it the, is, it the Coke, is it the Coke yeah. brothers? Is it the Coke brothers? Are you a Republican operative? No. Do I see, no, do I no. see a Donald Trump no, no. MAGA hat there? Is yeah. that what that is? <laughs> no, I, no, I mean, I, 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 I am doing it because I believe that, you know, children need an advocate. And I believe that that's, you know, our, our role as physicians, I think, is to stand up, you know, when we see sort of like injustices and see things, this does not seem right, you know, kids should not be suffering to this extent, you know, needlessly that, you know, we should, we should stand up against it. But, um, but I don't, I think, you know, it's interesting because I eventually had to leave Facebook because it was much more volatile um, than, wow. than Twitter was. Um, Why? 
What were they saying to you? Well, so like, I guess what, what really happened was, was writing an article in the Washington Post um, in May, which talked about kind of what we've been discussing that now that adults have vaccines, that school should be back to normal again. Um, and, you know, it was the physician's mom's group that, that really kind of like made it clear that I was, you know, they thought I was trying to kill children. And, um, and so then, you know, I started realizing that they were finding out who I was on my personal profile. And, and so then I, I just left because I got, I got too afraid of like being, I guess, personally, uh, attacked. Um, and I mean, I know there are other ways that people can, can find me, but, you know, I had, I had a lot of kind of, I had a lot of followers on there and suddenly I was like, wow, like they're just reading all these things that other doctors are saying about me and it got really hard. So, but then I got censored off of Facebook. And so then it, it was just for citing hospitalization rates, uh, pediatric <laughs> hospitalization rates. And I just used CDC's data and was basically you know, talking about how hospitalization rates were falling and, you know, like adult vaccinations, but then, you know, that got censored. And then that was the end of that. So, but, um, but Twitter has been, I think much better. I mean, I, I got censored on Twitter too. I don't know if you guys know, but I was, I was talking about, um, I was talking about vaccination and children. And I said, you know, that uh, given the myocarditis signal, this was back in June, that, you know, it's, it's not going to, we're on shaky ground if we say for certain that, you know, the vaccine is, you know, good, or that the disease is more harmful than the vaccine is basically what I said, you know, because uh, overall, and, and I said in healthy kids. And, um, and then that got censored and taken off. And, um, and uh, so, yeah, but I mean, I think a lot of, people are being and that was on Tucker Carlson he eventually put it on the show and I couldn't believe it so like because I didn't even know what Tucker Carlson was and the producer called me like while I was working with a medical student and was like hey can we use your tweet on Tucker Carlson and I'm like who's Tucker Carlson <laughs> anyway so it ended up on the show because I didn't know who he was but uh <laughs> now I know so it's interesting how you become this um how they've you know how you get how people get painted you know like yeah you get painted as these uh it, it's a sign of the polarization of the times. what yeah. what are your um so you also you know as mild-mannered as you seem um you you start <laughs> up you start off quite the uh quite the uh controversy with a um a paper on myocarditis. Yes, I know. It was, man, you know, it's so interesting <laughs> when you, when you think that a paper is going to be so helpful. Um, and then there's the reaction that we had. I mean, I, I, I guess I knew, I knew on some level that it was going to be controversial, but I just, I really didn't expect the reaction we had. I mean, I, I guess I'll tell you that, you know, we, we submitted it to the New England Journal and they fully reviewed it and we actually got, you know, positive feedback and they gave us like things to change. And, you know, then we, we ended up deciding to upload it as a preprint, like we, and we had consulted many, many people to help us write it. Cause we knew this, this, it's a very, very important topic and you don't, you don't want to get it wrong. Um, you know, vaccine associated myocarditis, just so everyone knows right. what we're talking about. Yeah. Can you, can you describe a little bit, uh, 
Can you describe um, just uh, or give yeah, give so, a short synopsis? Yeah. So we 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 so um, Ali Krug, Josh Stevenson, and John Mandrola and I we um, basically started looking through the VARES database for cases of myocarditis um, in in children associated with the vaccine. Um, so the VARES database is like a reporting system um, for adverse events re related to vaccination, and we. Um, and we so there was this known signal already from from Israel about um, the vaccines, the mRNA vaccines uh, causing myocarditis uh, predominantly in boys. And so, you know, uh, we we wanted to look specifically at children um, to, uh, to see at 12 through 17 to see how how often this was was happening. Um, and uh, the CDC had also come out with a report of it. Like, I don't know if you guys remember, it kind of was supposed to come out and then it was delayed. And then the amount that they reported ended up being really low, you know, lower than they had reported in, in Israel. Um, and, um, and so basically what we, we did was we started uh, looking at cases where you know the complaints were chest pain and the and the and then they they had elevated troponins and cases that um, so John would you know is a cardiologist who you guys know are friends with him and you've had on the show and he uh, he he would he educate uh, adjudicated all the cases and um, we kind of like made a, an estimate based on the number of cases that had been reported. Um, of post-vaccination myocarditis using the same um, the same criteria that the CDC had for di diagnosis, um, and except we did not require you know the main symptom criteria to be myocarditis. We said it could be chest pain with elevated troponin or and or EKG um, changes and uh, or echo consistent with it. And so then we ended up finding this rate of myocarditis um, in boys that was about 10 times that of girls it was predominantly after dose two of the vaccine it was uh, a little it was higher so one out of about 6800 uh doses in in boys uh 12 through 15 and then it was about one in 10,000 um in boys uh, uh 16 and 17 and so actually when we released the preprint our estimate was lower than the optum database um so that, that the fda had been uh, using, and so they had reported one in five thousand. Um, and so we thought, okay, well, you know, we now we have some data here on it happens to median of two days afterwards, and we have some more, you know, stratified data than they have, and this is probably going to be helpful for people to see these numbers. And you know, um, the other thing that we did in our analysis was we compared it to the risk uh, of hospitalization. And so basically what we found was um, when you look over a 120 day period at a given child's risk of hospitalization from COVID-19, that if you look at children who don't have medical comorbidities, they're more likely to get post-vaccination myocarditis than they are to be admitted with COVID-19 over a 120 day period, even at high levels of circulating uh, disease. Or, and so that ended up being like the, probably the most controversial part of it. So there were two, two parts, you know, just the rate of myocarditis that we identified and then that we stratified um, by, by uh, presence or absence of comorbidity. 
Um, so I, I'll say that since we released the study, there have been multiple estimates now from Israel and from Canada and most recently from Hong Kong that it, you know they exceeded the rates that we found of post-vaccination myocarditis. So that part of our study should no longer be controversial. controversial. And then you guys probably also know that there was this German seroprevalence study that was um, released that basically looked at risk of hospitalization and death um, from COVID-19 in children. And they also stratified it on, you know, by presence or absence of comorbidities. And so they found for a child without comorbidities to be admitted to the hospital um, and require treatment for COVID-19 that the risk was about one in 2,700. Um, and uh, the risk of, uh, so I wanna get this right. So the risk of, according to the Hong Kong study, the risk of uh, post-vaccination myocarditis was like, was one in 2,400. I hope I didn't get those mixed up. No, no, you're correct. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, yeah, so they kind of like verified, uh, you know, uh, the findings that we that we had found, and we had only looked at hospitalization risk over 120 days. Um, right. So. No, I mean, so what, what your... time period were you looking at uh, when you examined the database? Yeah, so um, we were looking actually at the at the late spring, and so it was like May. Okay, so yeah, we we were looking at May and June. Um, and so that that was, um, you know, right when the vaccine started to be rolled out among children, and that was right during the Delta surge as well. So, so your, I mean, this, I know you got a tremendous amount of blowback. I mean, my goodness, people were calling for all kinds of things. Really, um, <laughs> I thought it was quite despicable stuff, honestly. Um, and it's just because they, anything that is viewed as minimizing. Um, minimizing COVID or anything that's viewed as, you know, like uh, that's, that that's viewed as uh, in, even in the slightest taint of vaccines is, is seen as, you know, not on the team, not on the, and you shouldn't be doing it. It's irresponsible and et cetera. So really, really bad stuff. But, but in, I mean, you, interestingly, you really, really moved the needle. I mean, I actually didn't know about the Tucker Carlson tweet. My goodness. You, I mean, I should, I mean, forget about like Wisconsin, uh, you know, uh, Wisconsin, uh, uh, you know, sorry, a Denmark MD PhD and all this stuff. I mean, what, you know, what Tucker Carlson, what, what you have, you know, the, 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 the pinnacle that you've reached is Tucker Carlson and, <laughs> and, and Joe Rogan, my That's goodness. Right. right. But on Joe Rogan twice now, it's been mentioned there, I guess. I so. know. So like, yeah. I mean, it is, you know, your paper, that preprint is burned into, you know, the memory banks of Joe Rogan. So Joe Rogan, you know, believes, and, and, you know, he stumped, uh, Sanjay Gupta with that, right? Because Sanjay Gupta clearly has not, is not, you know, as, uh, is not was not plugged in and wasn't prepared for that. You know, Joe Rogan was like, "Hey, look, <laughs> it's yeah. preprint that and, says and, that." And Joe Rogan said it right. He even brought up the study and he yeah. said, you know, and they looked over uh, the 120 day period risk of hospitalization. I was like, "Phew!" So he he said it. He said yeah. it right. Um, yeah. I mean, Peter McCullough said overall hospitalization risk. So that's that's not what we looked at. Like, but. But I mean, you know, I we there needs to be a a better conversation about vaccinating kids. Like, yeah. Um, but because there, if- I, I, people need to remember that there are individual risk factors for different children, right? And so, lumping all children together for something that for a disease that is overall low risk to them, and for vaccines that we certainly cannot definitively say reduce transmission. It's like, you know, they reduce transmission for a short period of time is what we're seeing now, right? 
Um, you know, so so that argument of like we need to vaccinate, you know, for the for the greater good is like is harder is harder to make now given the that transmission detail. And then when you look at so when we divide up children, I think we need to look at you know a one have they been infected or not. And that's one thing that like we in we in the United States are not doing that. And I mean, that calculation needs to be done because if you look at like data from the New England Journal on protection from previous infection, you know, it looked like 90% reduction. You look at the Israeli study that they found that 6.7, and that was for hospitalization and 6.7 fold reduction compared to double vax of risk of hospitalization. Like suddenly you take a ch child who's already been infected and what what is their risk of hospitalization? And I feel like no one, no one is discussing that. And like we, I was discussing before, if you look at zero prevalence rates in the United States, some states like Arizona are over 80%. Right. Um, and then, you know, you look at that German study and you see that zero of 7 million children over the age of five died from COVID-19. And you're like, okay, so if we're vaccinating children, you know, for their own good, we better make sure that this vaccine is very, very safe. And like, you know, I, I, there are also children who are at much higher risk where we need to say, you know, um, you need to vaccinate your child. Like it's in their best interest because, you know, they're at high risk of uh, complications or bad COVID course. And, you know, there needs to be a different discussion for girls and boys, I I, I think, based on the data we have, yeah. but the all nuance has been lost. Yeah, no, it's really, no, this is all great points. And, you know, obviously you're preaching to the choir. We're, we're totally on board with this idea that like, you know, there's not, it's not, it's not a binary thing. Like vaccines can be good, but, and then you can have like a real conversation about, you know, certain demographics where, the risk of vaccines uh, may not outweigh the benefits of vaccines, and that's not some heretical right. thing that one 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 says. I mean, and and it, it also the history of that's also the history of vaccines. I mean, the rotavirus vaccine after it was rolled out was found to have more intestinal obstructions in young children, and they had, had to be modified. The exactly. dengue vaccine, yes, dengue yes, vaccine exactly. was rolled out eight hundred thousand Filipino children, uh, Philippine children, and uh, and was then found you know, that there was antibody dependent uh, enhancement and, uh, you know, it's only recommended now. And so there, that was after certain, that was only after it was rolled out and certain children after getting the vaccine and then interacting with dengue, then got even more ill and died. So, I mean, you know, this, this idea of having some epistemic humility about what we don't know is, is really important. And, um, and I, I, yeah, I, I'm still befuddled completely as to why it is we we are not uh, you know doing that uh, or that conversation isn't happening happening in 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 the right places now again so you are kind of one of the leaders of this kind of guerrilla resistance movement right where you are you know you are sitting there like tapping it out and uploading things to preprints which then go on to Joe Rogan and then Joe Rogan gets it out so and and you really Tracy I think you really um, you know massive credit to you. Um, you know, as opposed to just, um, you know, podcasting away from a basement cellar, um, you, you have, <laughs> you have, oh no, what you guys doing doing? No, no, you have, you have, uh, what I'm doing. no, no, not at all. <laughs> you, you, know, you have actually shifted the conversation and, and you've demonstrated how to do that, uh, despite the fact that the establishment is so socked in on one message and the establishment controls all the regular legacy media levers, right? Everything that Rochelle Walensky said, Rochelle Walensky says, that mass reduce ma ma and the children should be masked. ABC, CBS, NBC, um, not Fox. ABC, CBS, NBC, <laughs> right. and MSNBC. All of them will say the science says this is what's happening, right? And then you have this plucky band of uh, of, of intrepid uh, uh, scientists and epidemiologists and whatnot who are kind of you know 
generating your own data, you know, and again, and so kudos to you in terms of doing that. And you've really, really, you know, shifted the needle, um, you know, and you've gone beyond just like, well, there's some random guy in his, in his underwear um, <laughs> on a YouTube channel. Uh, Vinay, Vinay does wear pants, I think, but. but <laughs> okay. I was wondering. <laughs> But, but, uh, but, you know, you've, you've shifted beyond that. So you really pushed beyond that. So really, really great. Um, what um, do you, do you feel that the tide is turning Tracy? Oh my gosh. Every time I think it is, I, I, I just stop myself and I say, it's never turned before. So why would it turn now? So um, I, I mean, at some point it, it has to get so too ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, actually, it's so interesting. I think Le- Leanna Wen coming out and saying yeah. that, you know, cloth masks are no more than facial decorations. I mean, that's going to go down in history as a turning point um, because, I mean, she's one of the people that, you know, uh, she's that, that, I guess, who will we say? People who believe in, in cloth masks listen to, right? And who trust. And um, and I, I think that... <sighs> I think that the tide is going to have to turn also because it's like at some point parents are going to say, listen, you know, I don't ever wear a mask. Why are my kids wearing a mask? Like there's just going to be too many angry parents and the parents that aren't angry don't know what it's like to wear a mask all day. I mean, you guys probably know since you see patients and I knew too, I was like wearing an N95 and goggles and like, oh my gosh, I was like going nuts with like, I didn't want to infect anyone. And, you know, I was less worried about my own, you know, infection, but like wearing a mask all day is, is not, is not easy. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think, I don't know, is it a turning point? I sure hope so. I mean, I I want to say something else, which is like, you know, philosophically, I mean, the way that we've been looking at this is just, you know, masking children has not been medically ethical in the in in when 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 one thinks about like non-maleficence and like how, you know, we really don't have data to be doing what we're doing. And we just keep doing it. And, right. you know, we people who say that there are no harms to these kids who are deaf and who have autism and who have breathing problems. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't know, it, it just makes me so, it makes me so angry because, you know, I know that people are saying that children need to wear masks because they believe it to be the right thing, but people who have kids who are suffering wearing masks are not being given a voice in this. And the right. children are certainly not being given a voice. Right. So I think it's unethical what's happening. Yeah. No. Uh, thank you for speaking up, uh, and thank you for speaking up as early as you did. What? So if this, if uh, you know, if another virus lands on the shores, um, um, I, what, what, what would you do? What? How? What? 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 What would you say are the biggest mistakes that? that we made and and what would you do different so you, you know i'm, I'm going to rewind to march of 2020 now i wrote a letter because <laughs> i was i was scared i don't know what the heck this code was i thought you know who knows i you know i saw all this stuff in italy and mm-hmm. yeah i was really worried i, I had no idea my, my my child i have a my, one of my, my eldest daughter is you know you know is on immunosuppressants um and uh, and yeah so i you know i put her in a room for, for for two weeks while we tried to sort out the situation and and i wrote a letter to the school saying you know i think it makes sense to for you to stop this you know to close the schools um, i know i didn't intend i didn't say to close the schools for 18 months <laughs> but right. but rewinding what <laughs> what would you do <clears throat> in say so march of 2020 maybe we didn't know enough about the virus right but say april april of 2020 now we had a lot more 
experience from New York and stuff, and you didn't have children's hospitals filling up in New York. Um, but and beyond, so what? How, what would you do? What would the What were the five things say that you would do different? Um, so, I mean, first of all, I would say we need to have better communication between countries in terms of like, you know, the data that we're seeing and the strategies that different countries are taking. Um, and what is and what isn't working. I felt like that was really hodgepodge. And we've discussed about before how that affected our the school reopening thing. Um, and then I, I would say that, so the CDC needs to have a better way of collecting data and making it transparent and making it easy to understand. I mean, I, I still cannot believe that to this day, when I am looking for information about COVID-19 and the vaccines and previous infection, um, that I'm going to the Danish website and I'm getting much better information, you know, than what I'm getting from the CDC. And I trust it more. And that, and I think that's the other thing is like our public health agency needs to be um, an agency that we can trust. Like, I think that they need to be able to say when, you know, they don't, they don't know for sure. Like, you know, I think that all of the, you know, flip-flopping on this, this works, no, it doesn't. Yes, it does. Like, I think that there needs to be more, um, you know, transparency about, you know, not and, and humility about what we do and don't, don't know. Um, and uh, so also, I think that, I mean, we, people who are um, marginalized in our society. So I'm thinking, you know, poor children, you know, who don't normally have a voice need to have some sort of representative uh, or some sort of like, you know, way of being spoken for in, in, in these debates, because otherwise it seems like they're being forgotten, like their needs are, are, are being forgotten. Um, and then uh, let's see, there was, there was one more thing that I, that I thought of. And now, Hold on. Um, let me come back to that. I'll yeah, come back. You know, it, it all sounds very. It all sounds very reasonable, Tracy. It's it's um, utterly. I mean, absolutely reasonable. But I'm afraid that it's not. Uh, you know, uh, it's not a matter of reason and being reasonable. Because yeah. if it were, you know, the, the tide would have, we, we, you talk about the, the, the tide turning or things shifting. I, I'm, con I'm concerned. I'm not, well, it's, it's a, a double-edged sword. But, but now it's, it's very possible that things will recede very quickly, that the, the policies will change with the Omicron, you know, perhaps, right? I mean, let's imagine right. that all of a sudden it becomes, you know, much milder than it had been. Right. That we have these big waves and very few hospitalizations. Then the same the same people who've been making all these bad decisions for the last uh, two years will all of a sudden say, okay, now it's okay to open schools. It's okay to you know they will drop some of the policies, but no lessons will have been learned. Right, right. right? So that the next time there's a, a catastrophe, yeah, it'll be back to the same. Because at the end of the day, it's it's a, it's a you, you know it's panic, which is interesting well, because it's 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 interesting that it's been. Um, Compared to Europe, uh, at least my sense is that the panic was much greater here. Would, yes. would you say that's the case? Oh, yeah, definitely. So, and, right, right. I was going to say the fifth thing I was going to say was we need to be able to look at the trade-offs for what we're doing. So if we're doing something for longer than two weeks, we need to say, wait a minute, you know, is telling people to shut down their business for six months, is that a problem? Like, you know, we need to be able <laughs> to consider that. But, what, do you, what do you think of... 
taking this taking the decision out of the hands of of public officials what do you think about taking these these decisions out of the hands of of public health meaning perhaps we should we should have a world you know to michelle's point about they're not going to learn their lessons because whatever reason um incompetence or you know need to be important or whatever it is that that you know well, they may be well intentioned but they're these vices that folks have that 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 allow them to do this thing. What about taking the taking those decision points away from them? Meaning, should maybe we should live in a world where, you know, a la Florida, you know, where the governor comes out and says, no, we the state, we are going to say that no one has the right to mask your child in school other than you. You have that right. So um, I feel like there's there's two different like roles that that government can can take in this and one is like providing a safety net and providing protection Mm -hmm. and and serving and the other one is like the more authoritarian uh, authority like this is what you need to do right so i feel like looking at you know different types of government and public health that that a society cannot get along without that fundamental part of like, we need some sort of government or public health to protect individuals who are in need, Um, like poor people who, you know, you need like, you know, access to food and water and healthcare and basic human rights and, you know, the rights to everyone else. But then, you know, the, and so I guess me being a Scandinavian, right? Like that's the part of the government that I love, right? Because it makes things more egalitarian. I mean, but just philosophically, the part that I don't like is that part of like, you know, you need to do this, not because of, you know, science or because it's good for you, but because like, you know, that's what we believe or that's our politics. Like, that's where I think it gets dangerous. Right. So I don't know. Can we have one without the other? <laughs> you know, it's, it's very strange because... Um... On the one hand, you can think, well, in places where there's a more robust safety net, like in Europe, maybe the, maybe that's the reason why there was less panic. Yeah. But then you look at New Zealand and Australia, they have robust safety nets. And it was, you know, I mean, we, we, we should consider Ireland, lucky. Like, right. I don't know that that played a major role into their, you yeah, know, I suppose. I, I mean, and once you start having like those draconian policies, like they become normal, right? <laughs> Like, it was so weird how, like, something like closing schools, like, no one thought it could be possible or done, and everyone was like, wow, you know, I mean, and I agree, I thought it was the right thing in the beginning, too, and then all of a sudden, it was like, fall, and it was like, oh, oh, but, you know, it's fine, we did it last year, like, suddenly it's normal, and I wonder if that's happened in New Zealand and Australia, as people were just Mm -hmm. like, well. In the U.S., I think it's a lot of privilege, a tremendous amount of privilege, right? I think, I think the suburban... That suburban demographic that sits in, uh, you know, nice tree-lined homes and lives in half a million dollar houses and, uh, you know, both parents are highly educated. I think that group can tolerate children being home and doing their thing. And, you know, at the end of the day, whatever their children do in school, they're still going to end up because of connections with whatever. Right. And I think that, you know, in that, that, that's, I think that has a lot to do with it. I think there's this idea there because they can get away with it because, they can keep going to work because there's a nanny, right? Right. Um, and I, I and I really think that they're the ones who are controlling everything right now. And that, and, yeah. and that, the ones and that's in control. And then yeah. you know, I mean, I not to not to pick on Sanjay Gupta, but I remember him saying like, "Well, you know, I just hired a tutor to teach my yeah. kids at home, and like, you know, we're we're all good." And I'm like, yeah. "But I don't understand. Like, how many people do you think?" have the money to hire a tutor to teach their kids and like 
I, I don't know. I mean, I know that he meant it in the right way and that, you know, they, they were fine and he, you know, yeah. trying to protect people, but it's like, not everyone has a home like that. <laughs> right. No, but, in the, but and that's the sad right. part. But the sad yeah. part is, is that, you know, the Philadelphia school district budget is $3.2 billion a year, $3.2 mm-hmm. billion a year for, for, uh, you know, for per student that makes, comes out to like 16 or $17,000 per student per year. And where did that money go during the, I mean, it certainly wasn't returned to anyone. Um, so, yeah. you know, that's why you, you really, you know, yeah, I, I don't, I, you know, there are certain places like Norway and Sweden and stuff that somehow, you know, get it, get it right. But man, I don't know. I, I think I'm, I've, I'm pretty much soured on this idea that we should just rely on benevolent government officials to make the right decisions. You know, I, I well, think who, who, who would you have make that? Well, I think, I, yeah, I think you, I think you, 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 you know, I was always a huge fan of the public school system. I, I came here from India when I was 10 to this wonderful, uh, uh, really high octane school district in suburban Pittsburgh, uh, Mount Lebanon high blue devil, uh, blue devils, uh, you know, go blue devils. And they were, it was just such a fantastic school, massively resourced, beautiful library. Teachers were wonderful. Took like every AP class I could. And, um, it was fantastic. So I'm a huge, I was a huge public school proponent, but the problem is that's not all public schools. Right. <laughs> and I think there's a number of, and I think, and then on top of that, even if you're in one of those good public schools, then you have a pandemic coming along and it, yeah, and you can, it can shut everything down. And maybe kids like me who have like, you know, parents that are super educated and stuff, you know, maybe we come through it okay. But I think for a lot of folks, you need to give, uh, you probably need to give, at least I'm pretty convinced at this point that you need to give um, parents uh, the ability to take that money that is going towards their kid and that money should be able to walk to whatever school district they want, right? Right now you have like a captive audience and the school district can do whatever they want. You know, and I think if you create a better marketplace where, you know, you know, you have a huge marketplace of of, ki- of parents right now, right? Well, you may have 50% of kids, even in 50% of parents in California, even that are like, okay with staying home. But there's a massive, even if it's 30% of the kids and of the parents of kids in California that aren't on board with, with whatever the schools are doing, right? That's a huge amount of dollars, right? The California school budgets are massive that could walk to a school district that would do the right thing. And so I think taking away the ability for these public officials to mandate school closure, to mandate masks, to mandate all these things, uh, and then allowing school districts to kind of do, you know, having more of a federal system of school districts that allow schools to do whatever they want to do, I think you will, you will just attract and those schools will be massively successful. Um, um, you know, yeah. so you, you would have a school somewhere, I'm sure in all of California, you would have a school with a principal, maybe you'd become principal <laughs> or you'd advise the principal rather, uh, and they would follow you. They would follow what you said and they would keep cool. the schools open. And, and, but right now you can't do that through the public school system. You are stuck in your demographic. So I think well, it uh, depends on where you are. Right. I mean, and I was a medical advisor for the diocese uh, of Northern the California. Diocese. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The Catholic well, you know, school. Look at I'm that. not, I'm not Catholic, but yeah. you know, I wanted my kids to be in school. So what can I say? Um, ah. so, so, you know, and, and, um, and the school was open all year last year. So the kids went full time and, you know, no one died. There was not even any COVID that was caught in that. Our, our right. school. But Tracy, uh, but, yeah, you were no, able to, you were able to do that. 
Because you were able to take your kid out. I was going to say that now in North Carolina, or I sorry, in North Dakota, where we're doing the mask study, there are two public school districts, right? One has a one has a mask mandate, the other has masks optional, right? So this is this is public schools, and they're deciding what what they get to do. Um, and it's it's interesting because I mean we've all along been following, as I think you know, and the the, the rates are are not different. If anything, they're a little lower in the mass right. optional school in terms of COVID. And the enrollment has been like shifting so that there's more kids in the mass mass optional school. So I don't right. know. I think it it depends on the state what right. the rules are, right? Because in California, it's it's really strict. Um, no, yeah, right. No, well, that's that's what I'm saying. I think we should, yeah. that, that should, that should apply all across the United States. We should not have, we should not, we, you know, a kid should not be, if a kid is go, in a school that happens to have, say, a mask mandate or some some silly thing where schools are virtual now, you know, they go virtual at the drop of a hat, that kid and that parent should be able to not, should, should not be locked into that area just because they geographically live in a certain area like this this public school system that you have in north in the north dakota that you're talking about right for in order for a parent to go to a neighboring school they'd have to move into that area um most of the time and so and i mean no i've done the same thing my 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 five-year-old is in catholic school for for this very reason because i want him to be in school and not be virtual at the drop of a hat so many people like us you know physicians or whatever we're just like well we'll just move our child but not everyone afford we it. need so, to give yeah i think we need to give i think we need to give everyone that option and not just well, restrict I, it to I, I, us part, part of it part of it i i mean i i definitely agree with the every child in school should have similar resources though children with certain special needs should have more yeah. resources and and who's going to delegate that like uh, you know that that's that's where it gets tricky but like growing up in southeastern wisconsin i mean it was it was terrible the segregation and the you know between how much money there was in the school districts in inner city milwaukee and then in the suburbs i mean so i i mean i fully agree with you on that you know kids should have the access the same amount of resources right how we right. do it is, how we do it is tough yeah yes exactly <laughs> yeah. all right we're pulling we're pulling her michelle and we're all, we almost have her over here to the to the right where we sit. i don't know i need, I need oh, to pull, no. I need I to mean, pull you, you at the same time a lot of things i agree with i mean i i i i don't know i think people would have trouble pegging me down as to which yeah, party yeah, yeah. i would be part of and i have trouble pegging myself down but i think that's the way it should be i don't know <laughs> no, that, that is exactly what it should be yeah. we should all be yeah. we should all be for for the kids and what's both, best both for of you have uh, too lofty an idea of what uh, edu- the education about the educational system <laughs> and whether we even need education <laughs> michelle michelle is I think always kids are wasting it. i mean oh, i think I to me i think it's a stuff. silver lining that kids are not in school you know, what, what, I mean, they, it's, they're just, you know, these factories of indoctrination that we, we send them to. I mean, that's that's the last thing where I want my kids to be. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, think about it. I mean, the, the world that we live in is the product of the school system and the healthcare system. I mean, both of these things are, are atrocious. And so why do we want to fight, you know, to, to preserve them or give more access to them? No, no. Let, see, let it. You know what the scary thing is? <laughs> That Michelle is always proved right five years from now. I'm telling you, like five years, five years ago, I'm like listening to Michelle talk. I'm like, this guy is like, that makes that is so far out of, you know, <laughs> out of the zoo. He's like the Alex Jones of cardiologists. And then like five years later, it's like, <laughs> Alex yeah, Jones no, is always right. Yeah. He's always right. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess one could debate exactly about like how and where a child should get their education, yeah. but like providing basic protection, I think, to children is, is, 
is very important. And, you know, I think it's what separates first world countries from third world countries is like the ability for countries to provide access to education and healthcare and protection to children and the most vulnerable in their society. So, I mean, I, I think about it a, a lot, like where should that come from? You know, who should be responsible for it? But it, it is the responsibility at some level of a society, right? So, yeah, you, you can tell us, Michelle, what, where, not sure, where? not sure. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the responsibility of the, of the, the, the families, the parents, the primary responsibility. Now they can delegate it, but they need to, I mean, you know, in that sense, I mean, I agree with Anish, they need to have as much freedom as possible to delegate it. But we, we, you know, we've created, I mean, this is, you know, this is a, you know, hundred year old or 150 year old, um, Uh, ideal that we've set on ourselves that, you know, this standard education and whatnot, but not all kids need, you know, kids could learn, you know, they, they need to work. I, I think kids mm -hmm. should work at 14, right? Some kids will be that. much happier working than, than, than getting a high school diploma that is worthless, right? Where they, so, you know, we're, we're wasting a lot of time and a lot of kids times learning stuff that they don't really need to learn. And learning it badly when they could learn it much better. Um, I mean, there are certain ways that they can learn to read and write and, uh, and compute uh, uh, much better in a, in a way that is completely, um, you know, I mean, that is very different from the way we conceive of it right now. Mm -hmm. when, when you think about it as, oh, society has to provide it. Well, if you say society has to provide it, then it's going to be a standardized, you know, uh, awfulness of of uh, of an education system well i think I we should let people fam families should be free now of course you know families i mean there's a double standard a lot of families don't want to take that responsibility and, and would rather delegate it to society and to the states all right there's there's a, an appeal to that but that's that's wrong for the that's wrong for the kids yeah that's i mean i guess kids. i i worry because for so many kids it's like school is our it's at least right now, it's their access point to socialization and to sports um, and, and to safety and right. to lunch. And, and so it would need to be somewhere else. Cause like when, when school ended for my kids, I mean, you know, it was, it was devastating for them. And, and, you know, they sat on the couch and did zoom and I took them to the park and go, went running and like, but you know, my husband and I were still working, so we can't be there for them every day. They're little kids. Like, And even daycares were closed. So it was like, wow, this is, this is terrible. Right. I mean, I mean, that you're, is, yeah. you're right. You're right. When you, you know, you're right. But it's so, so in that case, it's a symptom. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a sad reflection on society when you, you need the school, these standardized schools for kids to have an access to socialization. Right. Right. I mean, kids should oh, be yeah. socialized naturally. I mean, yeah. Right. And I mean, you should have, we should have uh, healthy societies where kids are socialized naturally from just, growing up in the society and right. not have to just have, okay, we, gotta, we have a professional socializer that's going to be the school and, <laughs> and right. And they're going to, you know, we have these trained socializers that are going to teach our kids how to socialize and, and, and it's a disaster, hmm. you know, but, but that's, I mean, obviously. It's yeah. Not, I mean, uh, I think, well, you know, it's, it's something we're not totally philosophically aligned on because of, I guess a lot because of my experience in Europe and, and in Denmark sort of, seeing how different school is there actually that, you know, kids are in school for a shorter amount of time, you know, but they're, they're outdoors a lot. And like, there's a lot of focus on socialization and, and art and activity and like, 
you know, things that, you know, you learn by being together with other, with other people and, you know, that are essential parts of growing up. And yeah, no, I mean, I I don't dispute that. I don't dispute that kids should do art and and socialize and, but, but do they need a a government structured, you know, system for, for, for providing that? I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure the Danish system is better, but I I don't know that it's ideal either. Yeah, uh, I, don't yeah, know I mean, uh, it's the best that it could be for, right. for kids, I mean, but it's really, I mean, it's, it's, it's equal. <laughs> and I like that. I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm an idealist, right? I guess. But, right. Uh, right. But, uh, Michelle, you'll have to spend some time with, with, uh, with Dr. Hogue here. Yeah. We will. You, you can talk a few about more, a, long time, a few more, a few more, a few more podcasts. You'll be singing yeah. your tune just like me. <laughs> or wait a five well, more years. Yeah. Well, Dr. Hogue, this is, it's been, it's been so fantastic having you. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. And, uh, really, I mean, I meant what I said earlier, uh, you know, you are like, uh, have done a fantastically, uh, um, impactful, uh, job in kind of getting the message out there, you know, and you come at it from someone that's incredibly concerned, concerned about kids, the effect of these policies on kids, what the what and and you know unlike many of us who just have an intuitive feel for it and, and talk about it you know you've done a lot of really really hard work in terms of uh you know putting out data publishing it you know preprints etc and um, uh, preprints non preprints uh, cdc mmwr so um you know kudos kudos to you for shifting the needle and i think history will look back and you will be one of the folks one of the good guys that that got kids back in school so you know Thank you. Uh, well, uh, that really means a lot. Thank you. I, I, I'm so happy to have found your show. And you guys, I think, give support to more people than you know, because many of us go around thinking we must be crazy. But like you, you, you have had on, you know, phenomenal guests and I've really enjoyed it. So thank you so much for putting all the work into it. And it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a wonderful show. Thank you. Thank you, Tracy. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.